2: J.B. Is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is
1: my game. Right
0: on. Negro,
1: black, African American, Black, black, black. Django. J.B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. J.B. Our great Negro
3: sex machine.
2: Hello and welcome to another best of. I believe this is best of four. And it's been a wonderful year. And we're back in the Christmas season again, my second Christmas season. So I must be doing something right. And as you, if you have listened to my podcast, you know, I have had many leaders on and coaches. Well, this best stuff deals with coaches. And you'll see who next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast.
1: In Pennsylvania, a teenage girl that was about to turn 18 was driving her brand new car home when she looked down to check a text message and struck a tree, killing herself and injuring a friend in the car. The average message takes 4.6 seconds to create. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. Please don't drive while intoxicated or allow your friends and family to do so. No text message or phone call is worth dying for. By Mike Bryant at Minnesota Personal, Minnesota Personal Mike Bryant, seeking justice for the injured.
2: Welcome back. And as I stated, this is a best of for the holidays. And my first, well, as I stated, I've had many coaches on. Uh, Former Gopher soccer coach Steph Golan, who's now the head coach at the University of Missouri, women's soccer, Gary Wilson, who's uh, retired from uh, college coaching but still helps out at high schools, Mike Burns, Whose program was uh, men's gymnastics team was demoted, well cut, and but still lives in the form of a uh, club's team at the University of Minnesota, and also my brother Danny, who runs his own uh, basketball academy, dealing mostly with young women. But my first guest for this best of is uh, John Anderson, who's going into his forty-first. That's right, 41st year as Gopher baseball coach. And um, I've known him for every year that he's been the head coach. And uh, we kind of talked about things, and this is a question I had for him, and you can listen to his answer here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Let's ask you um, uh, this question. Where is the... uh Sport or game of college baseball at these at this time present time.
0: Well, I think right now, JB, the game's at probably its height in terms of its popularity. The talent level in the game is is probably at its highest, in my opinion. And I think the pandemic last year really, and with only five rounds of the draft in 2020, another year of eligibility, the, the number of players that were 23 and 24 that played college baseball last year and normally it would have been in a normal 40 round draft and mm-hmm. without major league baseball dropping 42 minor league teams. There's a tremendous amount of, of old talent, experienced talent, great talent in the game last year. And it was in our conference. I don't think our, our talent level was ever higher last year than, than what I saw for the teams that, you know, some teams brought back 10 guys that were fifth and 6th year seniors. And, um, Someone would have been playing in uh, A ball or Double A ball at that point in time, and um, so the teams that really had the old teams in 2020 when the when the pandemic struck, uh, and all those guys that came back, and um, and I think uh, you saw a talent level that we haven't seen before, and I think that trend is going to continue here because the draft has been shortened,
3: mm-hmm.
0: those opportunities are gone. There's going to be less juniors signing. So you're going to have a more senior experienced, talented players playing in college baseball than we've ever seen before. Unless high school players are going to get taken um, and signed out of high school. And so in talent college, historically. And when you look at the stadiums that have been built in our game, I mean, you got people building stadiums for $85 million uh, across uh, the SCC in the southern part of the country. and. And the investment in the game today we have i read a stat a few years ago that blew me away that there were eight college division one coaches in baseball making more than 10 major league managers wow <laughs> yeah that blew me away yeah so that gives you a sense of where the game is at and the investment some schools have made in the game uh, financially and the College World Series obviously is the, the second most uh, profitable championship. Uh, mm-hmm. Football is not in the NCAA championship model behind men's basketball. So, um, you know, and they built the stadium in Omaha when I was on the NCAA baseball committee. We ended Rosenblatt, and I was part of the opening of the new one. And I, when I was sitting there listening, we're going to build a $128 million stadium to play two weeks of baseball. Really? So that gives you an idea of, of, of what's going on in our game and the growth. The challenge going forward is trying to have competitive equity across the country when you've seen it in probably mm-hmm. football with the Power Five and where you're going to see people just separate themselves. Uh, you'll have, you know, 50 schools maybe that are going to be invested in a significant way and are going to separate themselves from the rest. You're seeing it some, in terms of the College World Series each year, you know, it seems like there's always four SEC teams in there. Um, there's there's a separation happening and I'm not sure that's going to be good for our game and healthy for our game and the weather is the big driver behind that um, schools that have better weather can build better facilities can draw more people um, and uh, generate more income and uh, that's a separator right now and if we don't find a way to try to level the playing field I think you're going to see uh, a big separation you might see someday. Where you're going to have two levels of Division One baseball, you want to play in this league. Here's when we're going to play, and here's what the investment's going to be, or otherwise there's going to be another league, and we're going to play in the summertime when there's better weather. If we're going to play with these schools. You'll probably have two championships because um, I just don't see how you're going to be able to, for everybody to keep up here on a national level with what's going on right now and, and the advantages that they have had and with national recruiting now showcases and people being recruited in the country um you know it's 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 becoming uh, difficult to to compete in some cases for the best players even from your region of the country so it's it's really changed and it's forced us to expand our recruiting horizons as well and uh we're not able just to recruit minnesota kids anymore because we don't get all the best ones because they're being recruited by uh the top uh you know sec schools acc schools Mm -hmm. uh, sunbelt schools all the time and and uh Eighteen-year-olds are attracted to bricks and mortar and the weather and going to the College World Series and all those other things. So uh, that makes it uh, a little more challenging from the recruiting standpoint. So you got to try to find the guys that believe in our why and purpose and want to come to the University of Minnesota. Some that want to stay closer to home and and you, you know you got to find a kid that wants a balanced experience and wants to get their degree from a great public university. So um, we have to we have to go about it a little differently. We we have to accept the fact we're not going to get them all.
2: Uh, I'm just going to take a step back here, uh, John. Also, one of the things that is affecting uh, college baseball is the reduction of minor league teams in pro baseball. Uh, It was a year or so ago the, the major leagues decided to cut how many minor league teams or affiliations they would have. So I would assume that would have an effect on kids staying in college for another year.
0: Yes, no question. Yeah, there's 42 less teams, and they eliminated them last year. And there were some really, really good players in our league this year that didn't get drafted. I was shocked. And uh, 20 rounds, you know, they're they're older. They're 23, 22, to 24 24-year-olds, and, you know, there's no room for them. They don't, you know, the, the Zach, Zach Robbie um, got drafted this year, and, and um, you know, he went uh, into uh, – Rule system, but he sat in the Springs training site most of the summer because they had no rosters to put to send them to. They had no openings, so the guys they drafted, they came. They just worked out and had inter-squad games together, and and uh, Major League Baseball, professional baseball, didn't want to make cuts from guys until later in the year, maybe till after the year. So you saw that they didn't just get sent out to affiliates because there was no room. There's no roster space until they make some cuts. And the draft got moved to the uh, you know third week in July, so um, you know the season's further along, and uh, it just looked like to me, professional baseball wasn't really willing to make any cuts until after the season was over, and they're just going to keep these guys spring training sites. If there was an injury or something around the spot opened up, then they'd move somebody out of there. But um, no question, um, you're going to you're going to see more and more juniors stay, not sign their junior year and stay in college, either they won't get drafted or they'll get drafted around where. Uh, there's no, there's not the money that makes it worthwhile to leave. So, after the fifth round right now in the draft, it's it's there's very little money. Most of the money goes to the first, you know, five rounds, and after that, uh, there's a minimal amount of money. And uh, I think what they're going to do, they're going to take the cream of the crop, uh, the Max Meyers of the world, and uh, they're going to let you keep the the guys until through their senior year, and you develop them. And we're going to have less teams, and they've realized that. College baseball, Division One baseball, has done a tremendous job of developing players. And they've admitted you guys are doing a better job than we are. And uh, so we're going to take the cream of the crop. We're going to let out the road and uh, keep them at your schools. And, and schools have made investments in the analytic equipment and high-speed video and all the things that they don't have to invest in the minor league systems because we have them. And, and uh, so they're saving money, they're letting the colleges develop the players. And, um, uh, and, and like I said, I, I think, uh, you're going to see that system continue to shrink from an economic standpoint.
2: Well, you just answered my next question, which was why, why would major leagues do that, give up that control? But that's a great, great answer, great understanding on why they would do it. I mean, it saves them money. And they would, they, they probably looked at uh, the way the NFL treats college football as their, you know, their development ground and, Said, hey, let's just keep them there. I mean, I've noticed that in pro hockey, you you would you would notice kids would be the big, the better players would play in Canada. And now they're starting to play in uh, college hockey because the colleges have put more into player development.
0: Yeah, and that's that's where the expense is. You know, to to put in the analytic systems they have at say Target Field all their minor league facilities is very very expensive and uh, and uh, so if the colleges are doing it and they have the equipment and we share data everybody shares data um, and uh, so why wouldn't we let them develop the players and uh, because they're doing a good job we don't you know it's less salaries you have to pay coaches it's less facilities and stadiums and and uh, you let the colleges do the strength training nutrition piece of it and player development side of it and as I said they've done the research and study and they've found that colleges are doing a better job developing players than we are and um, uh, so let's let them do it, no different than like you said the football and basketball model for years, that's what they've done, they let the college develop the guys and take out the premium players and let the rest stay and if after your senior year you become a premium player then they'll take you and at that time you have no leverage so they get you pretty cheap
2: Right Um. Before I ask you for the uh, the state of Gopher baseball, uh, just to finish up on uh, college baseball as a whole, um, and I would um, be neglect being a, an African American and not ask you this question: Where is the African American uh, in go and not? not just go for baseball, and I shouldn't state it that way, but in college baseball and major league baseball?
0: Great question. I think it's a question we've looked at hard and studied and tried to find answers, and I think first and foremost, I, you know, well, we have two African-American players on our team, um, and if you look across college baseball, if you see a team that has maybe two to five, that's really a high percentage. And I think first and foremost, I think our game is, uh, unfortunately, uh, the showcases and the traveling baseball and the cost affiliated with that. You have uh, people, not just African-Americans, but anybody that come from low uh, economic-based families, they can't afford to do that. They can't afford to get in the showcase game and the traveling game and be seen. And that's where everybody's doing their recruiting today. And it's not going out and watch high school games anymore. And all the best players don't play Legion baseball anymore, um, and so uh, I think there's an economic impact there that's affecting many, and again, I think that's why you're going to see some interest in our game, you know, go down, because today it's cost some money if you want to uh, play baseball, at the you know at the amateur low levels of you know the high school baseball, Legion baseball, and. And if you want to get into the, the traveling circuit, and, and there's year-round training now in these training facilities, and some of these kids are spending, and twelve, fifteen thousand dollars a year in this this whole training cycle, from from indoor and outdoor training to playing games and traveling around the country, and so there's a there's an economic piece to it. I believe um, that not everybody can afford and be a part of, and they get left behind, in some cases, um, which is sad. Um, And uh, so I think that drives it. I think second of all, it's, it's, it's it's a cost to play the sport. You know, I think in a sport like, you know, take uh, and and take basketball, for example, the the cost to play basketball is substantially less than it is to buy a bat and a glove and spikes and and the cost of, of equipment today. You just, you know, it's not a sport that you can necessarily develop without being playing with other people and being on a team and, being able to train with others and somebody to play catch with. So it involves, uh, you know, being a part of a team and, and, and having a field and a place to, to, to practice and, and develop your skill. Um, and in our part of the country, the climate doesn't allow outdoor year-round play. So mm-hmm. you're forced to find indoor space if you want to continue to develop. So I think it's a, it's a sport that's become, I would call it in some ways, a country club sport. I mean, where the the economics and the and the cost is is risen substantially. It's leaving some people behind, and uh, it's unfortunate. But uh, that's what it's come to, and and uh, so I I think if and and we look at the scholarships, I think at that at the end of the day, that's the biggest driver. You know, football, and right. basketball have all full scholarships. They have more scholarships. We have the lowest ratio of scholarships to participants of any men's or women's NCAA sport in college baseball. But yet we're the second most profitable
3: right. champions.
0: And so and then you go around and and, and, and kids look at, uh, the, the well, do I want to try to become a football or basketball player where I can get a full scholarship, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: These mm-hmm. good athletes, right? right. Um, I can play baseball and they're going to come and offer me 25% uh, because you can have 27 on 8 on the 35-man roster and divide that in 11.7. Pretty quickly, you can figure out the average scholarship is about 30%. And so you start looking at that, and some people can't afford to, 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 to pay the difference to play college baseball. And so and, – and then the choice becomes do you put yourself taking out student loans and substantial debt that's in, in almost entirely impossible to get out of as you, once you leave college uh, for a long period of time. So,
2: Tell me about it. Uh,
0: yeah. So I think there's an economic <laughs> impact here that is really forcing people out of the game that, and great athletes that are playing the game. And, and so I have a saying, the three P's, you got to find players that can play, pass, and pay.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And pay, pay is becoming bigger and bigger. And anybody recruiting today, um, you go to them and say, okay, well, we're going to offer you 30% as a freshman. Really? I spent all this money. I spent ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 a year for the last four years to develop my kid and he gets a 30% scholarship. And, uh, you know, could have put that money in the bank. And many of those kids probably right. would have been... Just as good or better if they'd have played high school and Legion ball where it cost them a heck of a lot more money. And uh, you put that money in the bank and saved it for their college education. So, And we've talked with professional baseball, Major League Baseball, about coming up with this, uh, scholar minorities uh, and increasing our scholarship totals so we could recruit uh, more minorities and have more money to recruit minorities, make it specifically to bring more minorities into college baseball. And uh, they are willing to help fund that because um, they want more African-Americans and minor, minorities in their game. Um, and then you, then you get down to the, the making something happen, and then the gender equity model comes into play.
3: Right.
0: Say if you do it for baseball, you got to do it for softball and blah, blah, blah. And So the thing gets all messed up because we get into these, these arguments about equity and can't have more scholarships and your percentage of scholarships for male and females and all the other things that go on. And, and uh, so it seems like it never never goes anywhere but uh, I know we all recognize the challenge and the problem we've all tried to look for ways to 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 to, uh, get more kids to play college baseball that are that are African Americans and minorities and and uh uh, those things get in the way and we haven't been able to solve the problem and and uh, it's unfortunate uh it's really unfortunate and uh and I I, if you have something like major league baseball that wants to help you would think we'd find a way to do that and uh uh, but we haven't been able to, and that conversation has been going on for a long, long time, um, longer than it should have, and we still haven't come up with a way to do it. We have a we have a young man uh, coming in uh, next year uh,
3: mm-hmm.
0: out of Pennsylvania, but uh, that uh, can afford. To, that's an African American that can afford to come here, and and his family has a wherewithal uh, that they can make up the difference, and and uh, he goes to a private school out there, and and so he comes from a Entirely different economic situation, where he can afford to, to, to pay the difference, and and uh, but um, you know there's there's not many of those around, and uh, but if you're a Vanderbilt, for example, that has right a private school that has you know uh, need-based aid and academic aid, and they can they can partner with uh, athletic aid, and as long as it's available to all students, um, um, then they can come up with a heck of a lot more money, and I think you'll see more African Americans. Playing at those schools because they have more money that they can help those kids, you know, pay for college. And uh, you'll see certain schools have more dollars available to help um, uh, minorities and African Americans. And and those are the schools I think are able to attract more of those kids into their program.
2: Well, the the other because uh, you and Rob and I would have this discussion all the time in the dugout. Uh, the other part to this is uh, kind of a social and maybe a little economic black athletes also maybe have the pressure to dig their family out of the, uh, uh, economic issues they have. And the faster way to doing that is basketball and football. There's no, basically no minor leagues, you know, they go, they they
0: have to go, they have to go to college. Right. Right. They want an opportunity. Yep.
2: So they go, they play and they go immediately for the most part, if they, are good enough; they go immediately to the uh, the major league of that sport. Whereas basketball, whereas baseball, you can still toil in in the minors. The other part of that is just the introduction to the game. I mean, I was lucky myself. I went to bed every night in the summertime. And my dad had Cardinal baseball playing, you know, through the house, so right. that fostered my my love for baseball, and. In a lot of houses, there is no dad or an uncle to introduce that, and that's uh, that's a piece that's missing.
0: That's a great point, JB. I agree. Um, you got to be introduced to the game, you know, as as a young person like you were. And if you don't get that introduction, you know, and again, I think some people say the game is boring. You know, it's hard to. Some people don't. They want to watch a game that has more action and speed yeah. and. And, uh, and so in some cases that turns some people off, but I, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, you know, that, that first introduction where you develop that passion and love for the game and want to play the game uh, has to start someplace. And, and, and like you said, in many cases it starts in your home and uh, you know, and that's where my passion started. My dad played baseball when he grew up and, you know, he took me to twins games when, you know, I was five years old. I think I've been to a twins game ever since they came here in, in 1961. We'd come to a game or two every year, and so that's where my passion came from. I got introduced to the game, and of course, we didn't have a lot of TV games back then when I was growing up, but I listened to a lot on the radio, laying in bed in the summertime and, and uh, listened to the twins on the radio, and um, th- that was a passion that I developed because my, 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 my dad and mom uh, exposed me to the game, and, and, and that's where I got my passion. And uh, so, yeah, you, you bring up a great point.
4: Well, we'll continue
2: on the other side of the spectrum here on the JB's low-tech podcast of coaching. After this message from our sponsor, Bradshaw and Bryant, again, I want to thank Mike for another wonderful year of sponsorship and the fine people, Bradshaw and Bryant, with all the services they provide for those who may need their services. So... After this message from Brad, Sean Bryant, we'll be back with the young one in town, the young coach in town, here on JB's Low-Tech Podcast.
1: When you need someone to listen A lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've talked to us.
0: Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at MinnesotaPersonalInjury.com.
3: Seeking justice for the injured. Bradshaw and Bryant. Come
2: Well, it's the day after Christmas, and we're about to get dumped with that white snow that they were just singing about. And we just had on Gopher Head Baseball Coach John Anderson, who's about to enter in his 41st year of baseball at the university. And my next interview is with somebody who's in the middle of his first, and that is Head Basketball Coach Ben Johnson. Who's been doing a wonderful job so far? All us alumnus and M people and just fans will continue to have our fingers and toes crossed that he continues to uh, keep his winning ways and uh, get to March Madness. So, without further ado, I do. Here is uh, Ben Johnson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier in my opening, today's guest is a rising star and somebody I'm very proud of. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce the new head basketball coach at the University of Minnesota, Ben Johnson. How you doing, coach?
4: I'm doing I'm doing great, man. I, uh, I appreciate the invite and get a chance to speak with you on your podcast, man. <laughs> yeah
2: I know you're very busy you're trying to get things uh set up and bring in new ball players and and uh lay down the expectations and how you're going uh how you expect things to go so i ex- i really appreciate you giving a little bit of your time
4: uh, my my pleasure my pleasure there's a there's a lot going on when you take over a job but you know uh, obviously me and you go way back man and have a really good relationship so you know anything i could do to to help you in the, in the jump on i enjoy the conversation man
2: okay so i like to uh, have my guests kind of give it a little bit of their origin story and uh i believe you grew up did you grow up in minneapolis
4: i did i grew up in, uh, in south minneapolis okay
2: and then you uh went on to play high school ball where at
4: yeah, played at De La Salle High School, uh, right there on uh, Nicollet uh, Island.
2: Yeah, it is uh, for my. Uh, I have a lot of out of town guests who listen to this, and for who don't know, it is a. It's. I believe it's a private Catholic school,
4: correct? Yeah. It's yep yep. It's a private Catholic school, and it's it's right downtown on the uh, uh, Hennepin Bridge, and um, you know, there's a couple. Uh, it's a LaSalle ministry, so there's a couple of them across the country. I know there's one in Louisiana. There's a De La Salle in California, Chicago. Um, so they're kind of spread out throughout the, throughout the country. But it's a, a co-ed private high school, um, five minutes from the U of M campus, um, and uh, you know some place that I hold near and dear to my heart that really helped me, uh, you know, academically and athletically.
2: Yeah, um, I didn't grow up here. But my brother was a principal of a high school called Cardinal Ritter High in St. Louis. And, um, yep. and it's pretty similar to De La Salle. De La Salle is a power in uh, basketball yeah. in the state. Yeah. And uh, Ben was one of their uh, greats. And um, so to have a local great move on to become the head basketball coach is something wonderful. But as a player... Uh, you, I, and I can't remember who did you play under.
4: So at Minnesota, I played under Dan Munson. Okay. Um, and and you know, I, I don't think he gets enough credit. So he he actually was the guy that originated the whole Gonzaga boom. And, Correct. Um, you know he you know so Mark Few worked under him, and uh and when Coach ended up taking this job, and obviously Few took over Gonzaga, but. Um, had a, had a great run here with coach and still stay in contact with him to this day. Uh, he's doing really good out in Long Beach co- coaching, Long Beach state. Um, but you know, like I said, he, he's a, one of the best, um, just overall team coaches that I've been around just knows how to, how to kind of be that CEO and, and get all these bodies and minds to, to be on the same page.
2: And you had a wonderful, uh, four years at the university of Minnesota. I'd take it.
4: Yeah, my time here was great. I mean, um, you know, to be able to, to play in front of, my, you know, family, friends, um, to be able to, to represent, you know, Minnesota and the go for basketball uh, was awesome. Um, wish we had a, a little bit more success on the court as far <laughs> yes. as like NCAA tournaments. But, um, you know, we, we, we won and, and and got a chance, again, to compete at, at a high level and, the friendships and relationships that I made here uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. So, um, you know, I had a, I had a great experience. Well, let me back up
2: a second. Uh, Why did you, or when did you fall in love with the game of basketball?
4: For me, you know, I was that kid growing up that that whatever sport was in season I kind of played. So that was, you know, soccer, baseball, track, football, um, I did hockey for a year. Okay. Uh, obviously, basketball. You know, I was just I was I was that I wanted to try it all. And and whenever was was going on or whatever I saw on TV, I wanted to run out there and play. And I wouldn't say I, I probably I always watched basketball growing up. You know, as a kid, um, you know Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. um, you know all those greats. I probably really started to love it in junior high. You know, I started to play more competitive, you know, about 6th, 7th, 8th grade with the traveling system and mm-hmm. started to dip my toe in AAU, um, started to, you know, you know had to develop a really close friend friendship and, and friend base um, with guys that, you know, kind of in that junior high era where we, took, we started to take basketball seriously, started to work on it uh, more in our free time, um, put a lot of time and effort into just developing our game and playing as much as we can. Um, so I would probably say right, you know, around that junior high, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, really started to to trend towards basketball and something that I was kind of became uh, healthily obsessed with. I'll say.
2: <laughs> well, I'll also say that I'm impressed that you tried hockey for a year. I coached youth and high school hockey in the city of Minneapolis for 15 years. Okay. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. who knows? Well, I, Our paths may have crossed earlier, and they I may have.
4: I, there was only two issues with me. It it ran into basketball season. Right. So I had to figure that out. And then, um, it was obviously really cold outside and (laughs) and I don't mind the winter, but like, and you know, you're, you're junior highest freezing. And then, um, I could skate fast. I just couldn't stop. (laughs) So I was that dude that was flying down and then would just slam into the boards. Um, but it was fun. Like I said, I, I did it for a year and, and did the whole park board outside where, uh, you know, nine a.m., ten a.m. in the morning, and you're out there skating. Um, so I enjoyed it, but then I realized quickly that I'm a more of an indoor guy.
2: <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. So you 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 in, uh, starting to find your niche, and um, and then you uh, picked De La Salle High School. Was there a reason why De La Salle High?
4: Yeah. So um, growing up, I would always attend clem haskins basketball camp and, okay. and if you were good enough you kind of get invited to right it was like a the high potential part of it and so we go to this high potential and every you know every year i run into this guy named dave thorson who at the time was an assistant at minnesota for clem
3: mm-hmm.
4: and um you know dave kind of took a liking to me um you know i was fortunate enough to have some talent so i think they were kind of you know at a young age you kind of have a pulse of who could play in the state and, and, who, you know, who has a chance to maybe develop into something. And so, you know, I'd see him annually and we had a relationship. And then one day, um, I remember waking up in like eighth grade and this was back when, you know, everybody still read the paper and I read Sid's column yes. and I would read it every day. And, <laughs> and in Sid's column, he had a little blurb and it was, you know, they always had like the highlighted name well I caught the highlighted name. I was like, man, Dave Thorson, I know that name. So I started reading kind of the little blurb he had and he said, you know, former, University of Minnesota coach, or assistant coach Dave Thorson, has resigned and is taking over the De La Salle high school job. Okay. So I remember I knew of De La Salle because they've always had good basketball tradition, and they had a couple guys at that time from the city on the team. And I remember going to my mom and telling her, like, I know this guy. And, And I got excited because I knew that he knew how to get me to where I wanted to be. And at that point, it was to get a Division I scholarship. And to play basketball in college and so the next thing i know i needed to do was try to set up a meeting with coach to to see you know if i'd have an opportunity as a freshman to play for him on the varsity team and so that's kind of what we did and so i went down there and i didn't ask for like any promises i just said coach the only thing i ask is that you're open to let me try out for the varsity team and uh and he said i can't guarantee you you'll make it but i can guarantee you that I'll let you. I'll let you try. Right, and uh, the rest is kind of history, man.
2: Yeah, a couple of anecdotes. One, Clem Haskins was the head coach when I was at. Clem Haskins and Jim Dutcher were the head coaches when I was okay. at school there, and yep. uh, even though I worked football, I did laundry for basketball, so I got to know both. And one yep. day I was uh, messing around out on the court, and Clem pulled me to the side and <laughs> he said, "Come here." and bring that ball with you, and, you know, when Clem said yeah. something, you went. And oh, I yeah. I went over there, and he said, come here, let me show you how to do a hook. <laughs> really? And then he showed me the footwork and how to launch it and everything. And within five yeah. minutes, I learned how to shoot a hook shot, and I still go. never forgotten how to do a hook shot. <laughs>
4: there you go. Always <laughs> teach it, man. Right. Always teach it.
2: And then the uh, other anecdote is Sid Hartman, who, uh, okay. ladies and gentlemen, we lost Sid last year at the age of, I believe, 101. Mm-hmm. And when we lost him, Sid was still working for the, the local mm-hmm. big newspaper in town, the Star Tribune in the sports. Um, he basically worked seven, 70 or close to 80 years for the paper. And... Mm-hmm. Sid knew you or heard of you. You were in, mm-hmm. and uh, for you to show up in his column, Ben, that meant that you were in. So, <laughs> yeah,
4: yep. no, uh, great. So e- even you know, I, you know, and that's a great point because Sid was you know, legendary. All the obviously the history he's got with the Lakers and, and
2: yes, and,
4: you know having them originate here and, and, and just being an icon in the sports. But um, you know that column was a big deal when we would all read it, I mean, you literally would open the paper and that's where you got kind of like what is now on Twitter. You got the scoop of what's going right. on with anything Minnesota related. And so it was a big deal. Like if you got in Sid's column, you knew everybody saw it. Everybody read it. It was like big news. And so I just remember that was a daily thing whenever it would come out during the week is like, man, check out Sid's column and see what's going on and um, keep track of, you know, the, the ins and outs and who was who was killing it and who wasn't. Um, and, and then when I came as assistant coach at Minnesota, he was in his 90s, mid to late 90s. Yes. He would still come in mm-hmm. once a week and yep. sit down in my office. Mm-hmm. And to be that age, still had a pretty solid understanding and memory of things that was going on. And it was incredible.
2: He, he could never re- remember my name, uh-huh. but he always called me, hey, how you doing? Black kid from yep. St. Louis. Now, he, <laughs> remember, he remembered I was from St. Louis because where he met yep. me was in the football offices when I first started as a student manager. And okay. I was also lucky enough to go into defensive staff meetings and, yep. and uh, get some education on coaching by listening to the defensive staff game plan for the week. And yep. one of the assistants at the time, part-time assistant, was Tony Dungy. So,
3: oh,
2: wow. yeah, I, I've bumped into a few people. Now, I've bumped into Tony again, and he has no recollection of me, which breaks my heart. But, you know, that happens, you know, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. in 1980. So he can't remember everything. But yeah, so, yeah. so now you're, you're playing at De, De LaSalle and, co- and colleges are starting to knock on your door. Uh, what, uh, what made you decide the University of Minnesota?
4: So it's kind of a, an interesting story. So, um, you know, in and, and college, I always obviously grew up, you know, watching Big Ten and, and loving Big Ten. Um, and so, you know, during the process when I was being recruited, you know, I always thought at the end of the day I'd end up in the Big Ten. And, and Minnesota did a good job recruiting me, especially early. Mm-hmm. Um, had a good relationship. Um, but, you know, I, I took a little twist. Um so I originally started off at Northwestern for Kevin O'Neal oh, okay. in the Big Ten for my first two years, and then I um, did not know up, that. Yeah, ended up ended up transferring back when he left to go to the Knicks, um, and and so it took a little bit of a twist. But you know, like I said, com- coming out of high school, um, you know, obviously Minnesota basketball was a big deal, and Clem recruited me, um, you know, and 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 I went through the process, um, but you know, thankfully. Like I said, it worked out, you know, coach O'Neill ended up going to the Knicks with Van Gundy. And again, it was just one of those deals where I looked at where I was at and, and what I wanted to get out of it and knew that Minnesota was always kind of in the back of my mind and probably should have went there from the start, (laughs) but, uh, it, you know, it ended up working out.
2: So you, you land here, you play for, um, um,
4: for Munson. Yeah. Coach Munson.
2: I was struggling to remember his name. I'm sorry. And, uh, You're uh, liking what's going on. So did um, when you were finished, did you uh, attempt to go to the pros or did you just move on to uh, coaching right away?
4: Yep. So, um, you know, I had a couple uh, NBA workouts. Um, and I knew, obviously, you know, yeah, if I could make a summer league team, that would be great. Um, you know, I knew I'd probably have to really, really grind and get lucky and catch a break, um, you know, to make it to the NBA. Um, And then I was presented with an opportunity early, probably earlier than I anticipated from um, a coach, Brian Gregory, who actually had recruited me out of high school that I had a great relationship with that I trusted, that was now the head coach at Dayton, uh, which is a big time job. Mm -hmm. And so he called me up randomly um, and asked if I had any interest in getting into coaching. And, you know, as you know, it's so hard to get into coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's almost impossible. And so I had I had to make a decision sooner than I probably wanted to um, because I knew I could have gone and played and, and done that for a long time and been really happy. But I never knew when the window would have presented itself to coach. And I knew I always eventually wanted to get into it. And so he kind of persuaded me and told me all the positives about getting into it at a young age, obviously getting into it with a guy that I respected, at a big-time job at Dayton, um, I knew I could have played till I was 40. I was always going to miss basketball
3: playing. <laughs> right. So, like,
4: that that kind of helped me with my decision, to be honest. Um, and, and I jumped into it. I, I, I went down there and drove down to Dayton. I was got to be 23, 24, and was two feet in and, and been hooked coaching ever since.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a major thing for somebody at that age. But I've seen yep. many people be successful in their 20s and watch them grow, you know, like John Anderson became mm-hmm. the uh, head coach at, at University of Minnesota baseball at 26. Uh, mm-hmm. Jessica Alistair, who was a softball coach, who turned the softball program around, ironically, same age, 26. So it's, it's not about age, people. It's about knowledge and uh, people who want to get after it. So sure. at Dayton, what was the um, – well, how was the experience and what was the next move
4: so dayton was great you know i was able to to, to basically learn and start from the bottom up you know as a ga uh, you do everything that's not glamorous right um, but is also obviously, obviously important to the to the job and and so you know i love the fact that i started from the bottom um and, you know I, I learned how to appreciate every phase every person every step that it takes to to run a successful program um you know, I was able to learn from a staff that was big time. You know, uh, two of those guys are in the NBA. Actually, three of those guys are in the NBA right now, in the uh, coaching capacity. So oh, okay. Reg, Reggie Rankin, mm-hmm. um, who was an assistant there, is now with Golden State. Billy Schmidt, who was an assistant there, is with Billy Donovan in Chicago, and then Bob Byer, who was the other assistant there, uh, is with Stan Van Gundy in New Orleans. So, and, yeah. and now BG's with with uh, there's the head coach at South Florida. So. I got a chance to learn from a veteran staff that's unbelievable um and then i was lucky i was lucky after my 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 first year there to get a full-time gig and that's when i really broke into the profession and was fortunate to work for a guy named chom schubert uh at a low major division one in south texas and at the time was called uh university of texas pan-american and i think right now it's changed to Mm -hmm. UTRGV. um but was able to to work with him and, and get on full time right after my first year of, of being a GA.
2: Well, my, uh, I have a, my oldest brother's going to love this conversation. He's a basketball junkie and he actually owns his own basketball Academy and gym in St. Louis. So, oh wow! yeah, he's, um, he's prim- prim- uh, primarily working with young females, but they do work with okay. young men from time to time also. Um, okay. So you uh, now you're down in Texas, you're you're you know, as I would say, you're climbing the lo- climbing, climbing the ladder, mm-hmm. to uh, and becoming more more successful and also uh, taking on more responsibility. So uh, where did that take you next?
4: Yeah, so I did I did two years down there, which which I love, probably one of the one of the funnest times I've ever had in coaching. Um, and then was fortunate enough to come back up to the Midwest and get on with Ben Jacobson at Northern Iowa. And, um, you know, Coach Jake was a guy I've kind of known uh, in a roundabout way just through high school. Um, you know, he used to coach at North Dakota um, and recruited kind of this area. So I, I knew him, had a, had a tremendous amount of respect for him. Obviously Northern Iowa was a, a very strong program. Um, so I was able to come back up here worked for him and and really have four amazing years at Northern Iowa. I mean, we, uh, won the league, you know, multiple times, won the league tournament multiple times, went to the NCAA tournament multiple times, was fortunate enough to be on the team that upset the number one Kansas. Uh, and we made our our sweet 16 appearance. Yeah. uh, Um, and had one of our players on the cover of sports illustrated. Um, was able to really, you know, hone kind of my philosophy with basketball. Um, and really, kind of speed up how I thought the game um, through Jake and, and through his knowledge and, and his offensive IQ. Uh, so learned a ton that way, of just how to think, how to think intelligently, and how to um, kind of form my thoughts offensively. And like I said, was able to win a lot, um, and that kind of propelled me to my to my next spot at Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I got a chance to work with Tim Miles. Okay, and that was the first big big break I got. Right. That was, you know, that was going from the Missouri Valley, which was a good level in a good league, but still kind of "quote unquote" mid-major, mm-hmm. uh, to get my first break into the into the, the high level stuff within the Big Ten, and that was that was Nebraska's first year going to the Big Ten, and, and getting a chance to work for Tim Miles, another guy that that I've known forever, was awesome, and, and to 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 be back in the Big Ten as a coach now at that time was like surreal to me. It
2: had to be. Um, and how and the experience was wonderful at Nebraska. Yeah, no, I take it.
4: it it was great. I mean, um, you know, just the, the history and tradition of just Nebraska um, athletics. I think I didn't realize how strong they are, and you mm-hmm. know, everything: baseball, volleyball, wrestling, um, you know, football. Without without a doubt, right? Um, and having experienced football and being around Tom Osborne and just the legacy that Nebraska athletics is was special. Um, the amount of passion they have for, for all their sport teams and that university was special um, and, and, and was able to be there and and again, hone my skills at the highest level. Um, and that propelled me to, to my next stop, which was at Minnesota and, and getting on with Richard Pitino. Right. Um, and, and the wild thing about that is I did not know Richard at all. Yes. Uh, we had never like crossed paths. We had never met. Um, You know, you know, obviously I knew of him, um, but was fortunate enough to to be able to have a couple sit downs with him and kind of persuade and and get my way on staff with him Um, and had a had an unbelievable five years, you know, getting back to my alma mater and and being able to contribute and and made a won the NIT and and made a NCAA tournament was able to get some, some local kids here that had some success not only here, but you know, fortunately, on the pro level, and um, and kind of leave my mark, which which I think anybody that comes back home, you just want to be able to try to have an impact and hopefully leave it better uh, when you, than when you got there when you leave.
2: Yeah, that's understandable. Um, I got to uh, travel with some of my teams, um, and Nebraska was one of my favorite places to go. It was just a ni- nice little. College town that had yep. a had a you know larger city feel to it, yep. and to meet Tom Osborne that must have been been a wonderful thing because I've sp- spoken to other people who say that the man is just a wealth of knowledge.
4: Oh, he, he's a, he's amazing, and for me, you know, I was I, I've always been a football guy, um, mm-hmm. you know, and. and to to be the guy as a true football icon was, was awesome. He was pretty hands-on. I mean, he was the, he was the AD uh, my one year at Nebraska. So we actually dealt with him and got a chance to really develop a a relationship with him. And that was, that was to me, the coolest thing. I mean, he's still, you know, he's got that presence. Uh, He's seen a lot and been around around a a lot of winning and a lot of talent. Uh, But definitely he's got that aura. I mean, when he walks in that room, He's got that presence to him, and, um, and to just to be able to be there and and, and have that relationship and, and connect with him and talk with him and talk football and history uh, was definitely awesome.
2: Yeah, I, unfortunately, I was the lead student manager for football at the University of Minnesota the year they beat us, 84-13. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, yep. Yep. and then I traveled. I, I I wasn't a student manager. I was a student worker in the department. And I traveled to Lincoln the following year, and we kind of held. You know, the following year we had Lou Holtz, and we kind of held our own. Um, yep. I don't remember the score, but it wasn't that bad. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: they had a. I mean, they were a monster. Yeah, so they 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 were on a different level.
2: Well that the year they beat us A413, they had guys winning all type of trophies and whatnot and, yeah. and um, you know first round draft choice and and yeah. they just you know unfortunately, we were the home team, which meant they only traveled with 70, so they couldn't go deeper and deeper into <laughs> their bench um, and it, yeah. <laughs> and, you know and yeah. it just it just gets out of control after a while well right. um this is normally why I take a break, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to take up your time for a commercial. Okay. I'll run it when we're, I'll run it when we're done. Uh, okay. So when, um, so you land back at the University of Minnesota, people are happy to see you. I know I was, I was one of them. Um, get to see you in the hallways, have a quick conversation because most yeah. of the time when you were in the hallway, there was a cell phone tied to your ear to Man, talk it always. to some young recruit. Um. Yep. Now, this is going to be a question uh I'm going to jump forward a little bit to now but yep. tie in to that point. How has recruiting changed from the times I would see you in the hallways to to where you're trying to convince young men now to come to the University of Minnesota?
4: It's just, man. It, it is crazy. It, uh, it evolves and changes almost every year, whether that's because of rules or just the times. But it's so competitive, um, and it's it's obviously so important for each program um, that you know it's it's all the time. It's truly 24/7, um, and the key is, is is you just gotta work it. You know, you got to work it. And I think social media, um, whether it's different apps or just different availability or contacts through social media that you can get with a kid, different platforms that kids use or you use to sell your program or your brand of a school, um, you got to just be on top of all that stuff. And so I think, um, you know, when when Twitter really came into play with just the amount of information that Twitter has and and the platform that it is, it really did flip, you know, all of recruiting, and, and like I said, now with the portal
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, that's come into play, uh, you know, it's almost like free agency, yeah, in a way, and uh, and I don't think it's going anywhere. So no, know, it's going to be not. around, and, and <laughs> no, it's it's our job now. We have gotta you got to navigate it as best you can, and figure it out, and adapt.
2: Well, uh, let me take a step back now to when you were an assistant under uh, under Richard. Uh, how was that experience?
4: You know, it was good. Um, you know, I, I'd always kind of been brought up in more of a quote-unquote traditional style of basketball. And the one thing I took, uh, one of the things I took away from Richard was just the, the different approach and philosophy that he had. And mm-hmm. it, it really helped me expand my mind and expand kind of my philosophy and my outlook on, on the game, which I loved. I mean, I was trying to to grow. Um, but, you know, the Ump Temple style, whether that's a press um, or actually multiple presses, um, mentality offensively on how to play the game, um, you know, what he ran, how he thought as an offensive coach, you know, defensively in the half court, you've got your different zones and your rules and principles to, to zone defense. So it really expanded kind of my knowledge of the game and, you know, definitely uh, taking bits and pieces from both offense, defense, um, and into me now as being a head coach, um, I think a lot of that stuff is valuable, and, and it's it's an exciting brand of basketball. So, uh, being able to learn just a new style for me was was pretty uh, was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, so you you're back in your hometown. You get to eat JD Hoyts every once in a while.
4: <laughs> yeah,
2: and, and um, you um, are you a married man, sir? If I'm not, not being married yet. Okay, nope. 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 All right. So if there's any young ladies listening to this in the Twin Cities area. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just there kidding. I'm go. <laughs> just you kidding. got my
4: plug. You got my plug. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um, so then you, you, after, you know, how many years were you on the bench with Richard?
4: I was there five years. Okay.
2: And, and then you left. And, yep. and I'm going to be honest with you. When you left, I was a little sad. But then I looked at some co-workers and throughout the building I said, he'll be back as a head coach here.
4: Oh, you, saw it. you saw it before I saw it, man. <laughs> you had belief before I had belief. I appreciate that.
2: I just, you know, I get these premonitions every once in a while and people think I'm loco and they happen. And I just <laughs> I just look at them and just keep walking. I mean, yeah. it's just, I, I won't say that I'm psychic or any of that crap. I just, For me, they're just... Breadcrumbs that are just left from people, and -hmm. you just for me, I just follow them and to the next Mm -hmm. logical conclusion, and you know I make, I, at the time I make wild uh, predictions, with people think, (laughs) oh, you're crazy, and then they come true, and I just like, okay. So when you when you left after five years with Richard, where did you go?
4: So I left and I went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, and um, you know, like obviously, to leave it was bittersweet. It, it would have definitely had to have taken something at, at Xavier's caliber uh, at the time to, to get me to leave. Um, you know, Xavier had just won the Big East, mm-hmm. and that was the year that Villanova ended up winning the whole thing, right. the whole NCAA tournament. So they had just come off a Big East championship. They're one of the one of the four uh, number one overall seeds in the entire NCAA tournament. Obviously, their basketball tradition and history kind of speaks for itself. Um, Unbelievable fan base, like I said, perennial perennial top 25 program. And so for me uh, at that time, it was kind of a it was too good of an opportunity not to take advantage of. And so got the chance to go to Xavier for for three years and and work under Travis Steele, who's one of the uh, another one of the young, great up and coming coaches in Mm -hmm. our game, Um, learn from a new league, which was which was really fun for me to learn about just the different style of basketball in the Big East. I think you know the Big East is one of those uh, NCAA staples when you talk about you know Georgetown, St. John's, Villanova, Seton Hall. You know, I could go on and on about traditional you know basketball powers. So there's no there's no like real football in the Big East. So everything right. is about basketball. Yes, and, you know the tradition is so rich, and just the style of play is different, and that's what I. I loved it. It was, it was fun to, you know, see how the game is played, um, see how it's officiated, see how it's recruited and coached. And I definitely took a lot out of those three years as far as just uh, philosophy uh, from, from, from recruiting, from, from play calling, um, from style of play uh, that I think will be very beneficial for for me here at Minnesota.
2: Um, so how many years were you at Xavier?
4: Just finished my third year okay. uh, this fall, There, this spring.
2: So, uh, unfortunately, we had a coaching change here at the University of Minnesota, and when that happened, I started wandering around. You know, I had, by this, you know, I don't know if you know, I I think I told you I have left the athletics, but I'm still on campus. Yep. And, you know, yep. people I work with, we still talk about uh, mostly basketball. <laughs> And uh, mm-hmm. some football, and a little bit of hockey, but uh, when that uh, firing happened, I, <laughs> I started mentioning your name again, and everybody just kind of looked at me like I was nuts again. I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then it happened, and I, I just they said, how would you even think of that? It's like, eh, I don't know. I just had a feeling. <laughs> so how was that day, uh, or that uh, that whole? scenario of being contacted and uh, hired and introduced for you to come yeah. back and coach at your alma mater.
4: It was, um, and it's, it was, and it still is surreal. Um, you know, I don't think it's, it's hit me. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if it'll fully hit me for, for, you know, maybe till the season or maybe the end of this first year, but like, it's still surreal, man. Um, you know, I know obviously I'm very blessed and fortunate in a lot of things. Uh, worked out in my favor to be even be in this position. Um, but it was, you know, for lack of a better word, it was awesome. Um, you know, to get that call from Mark Coyle, um, you know, to, to, to have the trust from not only him, but, you know, president and the rest of the committee and the athletic department. Um, you know, that it's, it's hard to put into words kind of what that means, but, um, it's special and you know to think kind of like i really came full circle when you talk about a kid that mm-hmm. grew up watching it was recruited played became an assistant and now a head coach i mean that story doesn't really happen all that often so i definitely know um, that i'm very blessed and um you know the the, the the timing of it was quick but i tried to soak it all in because um you know it, it is it is a it is a cool time and every day you know that i walk in uh athletes village and, and mm-hmm. in my office i'm reminded you know just how lucky and fortunate i am um, and definitely don't take the, the position lightly um, and, and every day i work you know hard with the mindset of trying to move this program forward with everything i have and um, you know hopefully in time we'll be able to do that but um, the whole process was was unbelievable um, you know for me obviously couldn't have gone better and it's just something that I, I was soaking up every day. And, and like I said, it, it's hit me, but it probably won't really hit me until a little bit farther down the line.
2: Well, you, you're not the first African-American coach at the University of Minnesota. Clem was. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you are the first one from Minnesota
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: and yeah. from the Twin Cities. Uh, do you feel any added responsibilities or anything about that?
4: Uh not really. I think the, the 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 responsibility I feel would I would feel this, you know, anywhere I was at. You know, with saying that, obviously this place means more to me than probably you know any other school I could be at. So there's 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 pressure, but it's it's not from the outside. It's it's more from from me and my expectations of myself and the vision that I want to have for what I can do for this program and this university. Um, but. No, I don't, I don't feel pressure from the outside. I think, um, you know, it's probably going back to, to my playing days. You know, when you're in this seat, you just kind of put your blinders on and you focus and you just work. And I think I understand the realness of the position. I, I, I get that. I get the level that I'm at and the expectation. Um, but I think, you know, you, I don't try to spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about that. I just spend a lot of time on putting my energy towards the work that's needed to get it going. And, bringing the juice every day
2: to do that well we made it through 2020 headed to to uh i'm sorry 2021 headed to 2022 um lot to reflect on i wa- uh, want to thank all my guests this year in 2021 uh somehow i've been able to keep my head above water and keep the show going uh I'd like to thank today's two guests, um, John Anderson, 41 years of rock steady coaching baseball at the University of Minnesota, and also Ben Johnson, first-year coach at the time of this recording, doing wonders with the men's basketball program at the University of Minnesota, and may he continue on with uh, things upward and onward at the U. Well, I want to wish everybody a happy new year and uh, continued health as we move on to 2022. And also remember to uh, ask a friend to check me out if there's any sponsors or anybody who would like to um, be a part of the JB Low Tech podcast. That will be wonderful. Um, and um, the show can be listened to at JB's Low Tech Podcast. Or I'm sorry, yeah, JB's Low Tech 80. Podbean, and that's P O D B as in boy, E A N, podbean.com. Here's to another year, hopefully, in my man cave at the Green Circle Studios. And I've already had a couple of guests lined up for 2022 and looking for many more. Here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast.
1: J-B. JB is my name, and fing up motherfuckers is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African American, black, black, black. Django. J. B. Damn! Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know. J. B. Our
3: great Negro sex machine.